Well, this morning, I want you just to, to journey with me a little bit. There's a man named Tom and a, and a woman named Nancy, and they were married for about 15 years. They're strong attenders. They're members of a church and very much involved with a youth group. And if you saw them on a Sunday morning, you would think everything's okay, and it was. It was okay for a long time until um, probably about 10 years into their, their membership, they no- we noticed they started not showing up to church. One would show up without the other one, and they were just really distant, and people would, would talk to them about, you know, trying to confide in them, trying to see what's going on with them, how they can pray for them, and they were just, just distant. And then he, Tom started, stopped coming, completely and nancy she she was there and she was doing what she could and little did we know that her life had been hit hard with a tough situation she has a daughter who's hers is her biological daughter and tom had a son himself he had grown kids so they had a they had a son together um tom and nancy and as, they were, as, as the daughter was getting older, Nancy's daughter was getting older, her name's Brittany. I'm just, I'm changing the names if you haven't noticed. <laughs> so I have to look down every once in a while. But what happened was, um, Nancy couldn't keep it a secret anymore. So she confided in one of the people in the church, and the church came into the, the counseling ministry of our church, and we sat down for what I knew to be a long journey with this woman um so not only with me but other loving women that love the lord that love to minister the word of god we would be we would be meeting with nancy for a long time she confided in us that her daughter who was since 22 years old a marine wouldn't come home she was wondering what was going on with her um, why wouldn't she come home? And then one day, Brittany told her that it's because your husband molested me. And he did this from when I was 16 all the way until I was 18. Do I talked to my recruiter and I said, I will never go back to that house as long as he's there. I mean, let that sit for a minute. This is what happens in a fallen world. And I'm going to tell you a story, her story. And I'm going to tell you how God ministered to her, to the family. I never forget, first session with her, she just got to a point where we're we're just listening. She's crying, we're crying, just trying to comfort her the best that we could. And she says, I just can't forgive myself. I just can't forgive myself. The topic that I'm talking to you about this morning has to do with the ABCs of forgiving yourself. My, my good friend, Dr. Ellen, who's coming here in October, and he'll be in this pulpit that weekend as well. He's going to preach here. He, uh, my friend and I went down yesterday to Walnut Creek to where he was teaching, and he just 
has a way of communicating with people on the ground level. And one thing I picked up from him yesterday, and especially with a topic like this, I think it's good to kind of reiterate that teaching that I learned is when you have a, a map, map quest, right? You type in your address and that thing and it gives you a starting point. You're starting here. This is where you're starting. And the address is simply the destination of where you're going. Okay, with a topic like forgiving yourself, it's really important for you to understand that the starting point that I'm trying to get you to start at is the Word of God. Some of you may not be there, and, and I guarantee you, you're, you're, you're probably a little bit, some of you guys are further away from that starting point than you need to be. You know, and it's like the busyness of life, the, the infiltration of secular psychology in the church, and all the pipes, pop psychology that comes with that. I want to suggest to you this morning that you may not be where I'm at as far as what I believe. And that's okay. But you need to get to that starting point. The Word of God. Because the Word of God addresses the issue of forgiving yourself. And you may be like, like my friend, we're in his car and I typed in the address and it says, sorry, um, unable to identify the address when the vehicle is moving and I'm talking to the computer, right? Like we're not, he's driving, I'm the one typing it in. I'm the passenger, right? And you may just be that person that's just driving and, and you're so busy with staying on the road and getting to where you need to be and you think it's just been working for me, but the fact of the matter is you're not gonna get to where you can be unless you start with the scripture. So some of you this morning will need to pull over, park the car, and, and type the destination in. And that's where I want to encourage you to start is with the word of God. So the topic is the ABCs of forgiving yourself. In order to begin to answer this question of should we forgive ourselves, should we not forgive ourselves, I want to suggest to you the ABCs, and I'm going to throw in a D for you. Just, just, this is just for you. You can have it. The ABCs of forgiving yourself. Number one, if we are going to forgive ourselves, the first question I would ask you this morning, if you've bought into that, is by whose authority are you forgiving yourself? By whose authority? That's the A. Let's look at a, a story of uh, the paralytic at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So let's just look at the situation. The situations, what's going on on the outside? What is it that's the heat that's shining on into your life that is out there but not necessarily in here? It's not in your heart. You're not, you're, you are, according to the Lord in his teaching, that we're not responsible for the things on the outside. Not, not responsible for the situation, the circumstances. In fact, God has allowed these circumstances into our life. He's allowed the heat into our life for his own purposes, for our own good, for his own glory. And so the situations of life really are just, they move us to a point of decision in the heart where we make decisions on what we're going to do with the situation. So Mark chapter 2, verse 1, the situation is, and when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum, 
after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Okay, so Jesus had been out ministering to people, healing people, teaching people, and now he's at home. The one who can heal has come back home, okay? And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. These guys were going after Jesus no matter what. I mean, this is a little unorthodox, isn't it? Can you imagine being there? Like, you're, you're just overwhelmed at what's going on with, with this person. They, nobody really knows much about other than he's healing people. That people are going to him and they're actually not one day, two days, three days, not a process, but Jesus says the word and they're healed. You've been affected by this somehow. Maybe it's a cousin, maybe it's a grandma, maybe it's a friend. It's been said by many people that that wrote about this time that this whole area, this whole Palestinian region, there wasn't one person that was left unhealed when Jesus came by. And so you got this friend, who knows, paralytic, probably from birth, no hope, but maybe, just maybe, this one can heal him. So you show up, lines through the roof. You can't, you can't get in there. He's teaching, you're hearing him, you, you, you know, you're carrying this guy. And then one of that friends says, hey, let's go up there. And another guy says, this guy, our friend, he weighs 150 pounds. How, how are we going to get him to go up there? So they muster, someone comes up with a plan, they carry him up, you know. But they get him up there, I don't know, a lot of grunting, a lot of stuff, and then they finally get to the point where they're at the top, and someone says, what now? Let's dig. Let's dig through this house. Let's dig through this roof. Man, don't you know this is someone's house? The, the teacher's going to get in trouble if we do that. No, let's just, so they start digging, and you're just up there, and you're, you're hanging on Jesus's every word, and some dirt starts to hit you in the face, and you're like, What's going on? You're like, no, okay. Maybe they had some poor builders or someone. Maybe this is the person that built their house on the sand. Maybe the sand's on top of the roof. It was. And more dirt, more noise. And one of them, <laughs> you know, laughs. And you're, what is going on? And then everybody's looking down. And then it's like the light comes on. And here's this guy, probably with ropes, swinging around, just helpless, can't move. And he's just looking around at people, swinging around right where Jesus is. I mean, it's really interesting when you put yourself in the shoes of some of these stories, right? But there he is. He lays down. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, John MacArthur says that Jesus was more interested in the way that people worship the Father more than any other thing. Yeah, Jesus healed. 
Yes, Jesus taught. Yes, Jesus loved. Yes, Jesus had compassion. But what Jesus was most concerned about with all of us is the way that we worship God the Father. And when he saw that the unorthodox work of these guys to get him to where he was, they were willing to do whatever it took to get this paralytic down to Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask, hey, how's your house insurance? Right? You got a pretty big deductible because you're going to need one. Would this even be covered? Jesus was more concerned about their faith. And it's not just the faith of the paralytic. It's the friends. The friends that brought this guy to Jesus. And Jesus said, son... Your sins are forgiven. What? He saw the faith of these guys. He looks down at this, and you know everyone's hanging now. On, they were hanging on his words before, but now he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 6, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Wouldn't you be? I mean, at this point in Jesus' ministry, many people don't know who he is. And if you grew up in this, this time and this, this culture, you would know there was a high reverence for God. What they had was the Old Testament. They, they, they heard it in the synagogues and the temple. God had designated priests to, to, to be set apart for the people, to minister the word of God. Usually they just heard it. They, they didn't read it. But they knew enough to know that no man can say your sins are forgiven. And so these religious leaders who knew best were sitting there. And, and note this, this is important. They're questioning in their hearts. They're questioning in the immaterial part of who they are. The part you can't see your soul. And they're questioning in their hearts, and this is what they're saying in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? Here's the dilemma. If Jesus is a mere man, it's a good question to question. If you guys hear someone say that, walk up and say, hey, your sins are forgiven, without any Jesus backing behind that, we would say they're insane as well, right? Would, we should. But they're questioning in their heart, and they say, why does that man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. Because here's, here's the connection, right? And Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and, and people who are from false teachings of the Scriptures will tell you that, where does it say Jesus is God? Here. And many, many other places. But the problem is, is your religion, your cult, what, what it is, is it's removed from the original audience and, and, and what they would have understood. And you bring your agenda into the text. But if you're taking the agenda out of the text, you will know that anybody who says that they forgive sin, that's only a, a statement that God can make. So the result would be blasphemy. They're right. It would be blasphemy if Jesus was only a man. And here's the point. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I ask you that point this morning. 
I ask you the same question. By what authority do we forgive ourselves? And why, if we believe we can forgive ourselves, I would say to you this morning, why do you speak like that? That's blasphemy. That's something only God can do. Only God has authority to forgive sins. You do not. Now, if you're out there and you're not at the starting point and you're way out there, I understand the frustration. You're lost. There's a storm around you and you've, you're just living in the world of psychology, maybe, secular psychology, and you're like, Man, but people are writing books about this in the, in the Christian bookstore. I've heard songs about it. But here's the issue. Get to the starting point. That's number one. And the starting point is, the first question you have to ask is, by what authority, by whose authority can you forgive your own sins? Verse 8 says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, this man is committing blasphemy. This man, why does he speak like that? Conversation in the heart. Jesus as well has the same conversation, and he's able to see into the heart, which is another thing that only God can do. And Jesus says to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Now, think about what's going on. This has been an inward conversation, and Jesus now is engaging the heart, which is something only Jesus can do, right? So today, we live in a time where Jesus has died, been buried. He rose again. He's ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. He serves that propitiatory role of priest for us. He makes intercession for us, and and the Holy Spirit comes down in his high priestly prayer. He says, they must come down. They will reveal to you the things that are said. And what we have here before us in the scriptures is God's word. And it says that God's word in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see the connection? Why is the word of God so important to the personal ministry to somebody else? We're trying to help them have that transformation, have that heart change, it's because the word of God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Just like Jesus, when he walked the earth, can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. What do you think? What would you say if you were there? I'd be like, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's what I vote. Right here, me, right here, I want to see him rise. I want to see him take up his bed and walk. This guy's a paralytic. It's all about healing, and if you could show me this healing, I'll believe. Does that sound familiar in Redding, California? I didn't have to say what the golden calf is in our community, do I? Because you know it. But what, what is harder is not the person taking up his mat and walking away restored by physical healing. What's more miraculous, what's more supernatural is the very fact that this man who, who inherited the sinful nature of Adam, just like all of us, that Jesus would see the faith and say, your sins are forgiven. That's more supernatural. Why? Because that's eternal. See, the fact of the matter is, guys like Lazarus, who really were raised from the dead, they still died. 
This, this paralytic who, who really got up and walked, he still died. But the, diff, the, the reason why forgiveness of sins is more supernatural is because this is, has eternal weight. It means that when this person dies, if they're covered by the, the, the blood of Christ, if they're forgiven by him, they're not going to stand in front of God the Father as judge. They'll stand before Christ for rewards, and they'll inherit heaven forever. So which is more important? Your sins are forgiven, or the physical healing of another person. And here's the thing that I'll say. God still does both. He still does both, because he's God. But the emphasis in the church needs to be on, number one, evangelism. Because it's evangelism that tells people that, hey, you're, uh, the starting destination's here, and you're way out there, and we need to get you here so that you can live according to this life, and, and you can reach the destination of heaven. Along the way, yeah, there'll be healing, but guess what? There'll also be suffering as well. And the same God that heals is the same God that loves and has compassion for the sufferer. Same God. So rise, take up your mat, and walk but that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, <laughs> this is interesting, because this is a matter of emphasis, right? You guys, you guys should know in your theology that God, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, all God, all equally God, we know that, right? So Jesus doesn't in this instance say that I come to you by the authority of the Father and I, because this is what the Mormons will teach, because I have the authority of the Father, you're forgiven. No, Jesus, because he's part of that triune Godhead with his own authority, says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So the first question we have to ask ourselves, if we come to the starting point of God's word, is by whose authority are you able to forgive your sins? If you say, I, I, I just need to forgive myself, what, what, should, what should come if you've listened to this sermon should be, but by whose authority do I have to forgive my sins? And it's not your own. Christ. Christ has the authority to forgive your sins. So this is bigger than you think it is. That's what I found as I've been doing my dissertation on forgiveness is that all, all these hindrances that are way out there and they're not on the starting point of the map, but the, it's really an attack on the gospel, which should carry a lot of weight for the Christian. Because if we're saying that there's anything more authoritative than Christ to forgive us our sins, and here's the worst part. If we're the person that has the authority to forgive our own sins, I would say to you today that that's blasphemy according to the same principles that are in Mark chapter 2. They were all amazed and glorified God. Saying we never saw anything like this. Number two, by whose blood? So by whose authority? The example from the paralytic. Number two, by whose blood are we able 
to forgive ourselves. We want to look at the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. So here's the situation. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each other can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts, and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted in the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat, don't eat of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. What's going on here? We know it as the Passover. This is the, the, the fact of the matter is this is the last curse upon Egypt. It's, it's really, it's, it's that dagger to, to Egypt saying that no more, let my people go. But on the other side of things, you have God shepherding his own people saying that your sins, this, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a death angel that's going to come by and it's going to sweep through and it's going to take the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians. And if you want to escape that, this is what you need to do. You need to take a lamb that's pure, without blemish, and you need to sacrifice that, that lamb and you need to take the blood and put it appropriately on the, the doorposts of your houses. And if I see that, your faith... If I see your faith by doing that, what will happen that night is that the death angel will pass over your house and your firstborn sons will be saved. That's the sacrifice that God requires for forgiveness. Let me, let me bring that one back. From the very beginning in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, you have what some people call the proto-evangelion, the first good news, the first gospel where God promises after the fall that there would be one that would come from Eve's offspring and he would crush the serpent's head and that they would be at enmity with each other. Jesus, in, in Genesis chapter 4, you have Cain and Abel. One brings the sacrifice that's acceptable to God, one does not. I, think, I don't think that we can put anything in there to say that that was a lamb, but there's a good chance that it was. The, the point that developed in Genesis chapter 4 was the idea that God requires a sacrifice for sin. Although I can't tell you that that was a lamb in Genesis 4, even though it would play into what I'm going to say after this, here's what you need to know. One sacrifice was required and accepted by God. One brought whatever he wanted. 
It was a workspace sacrifice. The point is, is that God requires a sacrifice. And this lamb would move all the way through the Old Testament, through the priests, and as God established a, a, a priesthood with temples and, and everything through the Old Testament, this is what they'd be doing. They'd be doing these sacrifices day in and day out until Jesus comes on the scene. I have to skip that slide, but Jesus comes back on the scene and, and John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the lamb of God. And in this manner, you shall eat of it, the Lamb of God. Here it is, John uh, 1, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses. John 1, 29, I'm getting there. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I know I don't have much time to develop this, but let's just develop it in Revelation, okay? Revelation's after Jesus has, right? You, you see the, this thing going on in heaven, this, this, all this stuff going on in Revelation, but follow the Lamb of God through um, Revelation. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which were the prayers of the saints, Jesus is the Lamb of God in, in, in Revelation 5, 12 to 13, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne of the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever Revelation 6, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice of thunder, come, calling to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face from him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, and, and this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and nations standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white clothes and palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the lamb. Revelation chapter 7. And he said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then moving on into Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in, in heaven for about a half an hour. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They loved not their lives even unto death. Verse 13, verse 8 of chapter 13. And all who dwell on earth, all who worship, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, the book of the lamb was slain. Revelation 14. Then I looked and behold, Mount Zion stood the lamb and the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads is these who have had the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, all the way through, the lamb, I will, I'll move through this, I promise, the lamb, great and amazing, the lamb saying, O Lord Almighty, 
this theme, Revelation 17, 14, 19 and 17, 19, 7, let us rejoice and exult and give glory to him. The glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made her ready. And then closing in Revelation, and an angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the, the true words of God. Then came one of the seven angels and one of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb and the wall of the city and the 12 foundations and all them that were in the 12 names, the 12 apostles and the lamb. The lamb, 22.1, the angel showed me the river of the water, bright as crystal, following the throne of God of the lamb no longer will there be anything a curse but the throne of god and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him keith and kristen getty this is why their song getty is so awesome behold the lamb behold the lamb who bears our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made for those who come in faith find forgiveness in the cross so we share in the blood and the bread of life, and we drink from a sacrifice and a sign of our bonds of peace. And that's just one standard, around the table of the king. And so, what's the point? The point is, not only do we have the authority to forgive our sins, Jesus does, we, we, don't, we, we, we also don't have the sacrifice that's required to make that possible for our sins to be forgiven, and that's the whole idea behind the Lamb of God, all the way from the beginning of the Bible, all the way to the end, it's the same theme that Jesus is coming to fulfill what God, before the foundations of the world, God the Father had already planned all of this. And Jesus comes and he initiates it and the Holy Spirit executes this whole salvation plan. So this is the gospel. The authority of Christ to forgive sins, the blood that he he was slain for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might know the righteousness of God. It's that very blood sacrifice that we need to be able to, to have forgiveness. And if we say, I forgive myself, you have to have the authority and you have to have the, the blood by way of the sacrifice to make a comment like that. So you can see it's an attack on the gospel, that teaching. By whose confession? That's C. By whose confession? So let's look at the perpetrator and priest. You see this in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By whose confession? The first two areas of authority and blood, sacrifice, that's all God. And that's why... We can probably mostly, all of us would agree in this room, hopefully, that the gospel is not about what we bring to the table, it's what God did for us. Can we agree with that point? That it's God's authority, not ours, that it's his blood sacrifice on our behalf, that we simply, our job is, get this, believe. Faith. 
That's our part in salvation. It's, it's like um, Chris Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, talks about the gift, the, the gift that's been wrapped up for us. And we have to receive the gift and we have to unwrap the gift. And what the gift is, is this Jesus with all authority saying that your sins are forgiven and Jesus' blood sacrifice to back up that statement because he did die on a cross. He, those words became visible for the people during his time. So we would say that that is monergistic, that is God alone is involved in salvation. Our part is faith, okay? But this next part is where really, because the issue is guilt when you're dealing with self-forgiveness. Guilt is, here's the bigger question than can I forgive myself, it's what do I do with the guilt? Because that's what's there. When Nancy was dealing with her daughter and her husband, her guilt was in the fact that I can't believe that I married him. How, how could I have done that? And she, st- she was rehearsing in her mind over and over and over again. And then how can I bring my daughter, my biological daughter, into this house? And that's what was causing this guilt in her mind. And she turned inward. She trusted in God. I mean, I, she, was, she was having a tough season, but she didn't think that God was the problem. She thought that she was the problem, and people were telling her, all you got to do is just forgive. You have to find it in you to forgive yourself, but that's not what would alleviate guilt. That's not how to handle guilt, because you don't have the authority. You don't have the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, so this is where the synergistically, we're working together with God, in our sanctification, in our discipleship, in our after salvation, as we live in between the already of salvation and the not yet of glorification, when we've been born again to the living hope and we begin this process, this journey, until God takes us home, that we have to work very carefully and diligently and we have to work hard with God. Why? Because we have the world, we have the flesh, we have the devil, all throwing arrows at us every single day of our lives. And so we have to work hard with God to have that reality from Colossians 2.15 that God has disarmed the powers and authorities that are against us, that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we're slaves to Christ, that the power of sin because of Christ on the cross has been done away with. It has no power over us, which means that we can say no to sin. The presence of sin is still alive and active, yes, but here's 1 John 1.9 coming in. Sometimes we don't say no to sin. But thanks be to God, the Father, through Christ, his Son, who has as his role as a propitiator for us, one that makes confession for it. We make confession to him, and he, in turn, forgives us our sins because he is our intercessor. He's seated at the Father's right hand. So here's the idea of, you see this working together perfectly in 1 John 1, 9, It's this idea that if we, if, that's the condition, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, you want to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, you need to maintain that communion, father, son, daughter relationship that you have with God through Christ. When you sin, you need to confess your sins to him. And here's the beautiful thing about it. That's our part, is we confess our sins, but then we have our priest who's faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. This is not a justification type of cleansing. This is an ongoing parental type of cleansing where those of us who have kids know that when little Johnny, you know, um, has some, some little bad words come out of his mouth, we're like, oh, oh my goodness, son, where is that coming from? No, you can be like, hmm, Mark chapter 7 says that it's not, the, it's not what comes into you that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of you. What's wrong with Johnny is it's already in him, and that's what's coming out of Johnny. He's not as innocent as you think he is. And when he says in his little, you know, quivering voice, I'm sorry, Dad. I forgive you, son. I forgive you. Let's, let's talk about how we're not going to do that again. Right? And then tomorrow happens and there they go again. Why? Because Johnny's dealing with remaining sin in his life. That's why that comes out. And that's why Jesus is so important after the cross. Because we're supposed to be confessing our sins to him and he forgives us our sins. So the reality is the authority of Christ, the blood of Christ, that is his job for us. And we believe this is where we come in by way of confession. We confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. So let me give credit where credit's due. Dr. Jones, um, Dr. Robert Jones is one of my professors at Southern, and he's written a book, uh, a little book on, um, a little pamphlet on I can't, I just can't forgive myself. So the first three, the A, B, and the C's, that's my, um, my creativity, but the rest of this is his, and I, I'm going to give him credit. So if, if you guys want more of this, it's just a little book. You can find it on Amazon. It's like $3.99, and he'll explain real life situations. He's really good. But what's going on with the question, what is the diagnosis then? What's the diagnosis? What's the problem with this question? The, the ABCs of forgiving yourself. And this is where I say, at the beginning, I, I talked about that starting point. Really, if I'm trying to help you and you're struggling for this, I'm not going to come at you like, well, you know whose authority you have to f- confess your si- to forgive yourself? Are you some kind of nimgasol or whatever word you want to make up? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to understand that where I'm at on the starting point is God's word and where you are. First, you need to get to that starting point to go to the destination. So a lot of the times when I've in, engaged this in the counseling situation, like in the local churches, a lot of the times the person's not even a Christian. So what's the starting point? The gospel, right? The authority of Christ, the blood of Christ, and then they see the, the confession and, and their part in sanctification. So here's the first question. So basically there's four questions that we need to figure out. Is there an inability or unwillingness to grasp and receive God's forgiveness? We may say that we can't forgive ourselves because we really doubt that God has forgiven us. Or we don't see our need for God's forgiveness. Example with Nancy. She didn't see her sin as allowing her to come together with her husband, and while all this happened in her house, she didn't see that as a forgivable sin. That was her stumbling block. She says, I know that God forgives, but this, look what I did, the choices that I make. And she found herself going back to that time when she said yes, and I do, and all those things, and, and then not keep blaming herself, blaming herself for all the things that happened, and she tries to rehash all this historical stuff that was behind these three years of molestation going on in her house. 
And so that's, we've camped out on that point. Number two, can the person see or acknowledge the depth of his own sinful nature? This may come in the form of, I just can't believe that I did that, whatever the situation was. It's an inability to forgive oneself, and it often expresses the underlying problem of self-righteousness. Example, I know that other people have had an abortion, but I can't believe I did. I can't believe I made that mistake. And because I can't believe I made that mistake, I can't forgive myself. But when somebody is doing this, they're, they're forgetting that, that the battle of remaining sin is still alive and active in their life. Just because they become a Christian, just because they're born again, doesn't mean all of a sudden that it's just all the Holy Spirit and making the right decisions at the point of choice and having the peace of God all the time. That's not the, the way that the Bible presents our walk after we become Christians. But it's, I, you, you need to help this person to get to a point where they see carefully, you carefully handle this, where it shouldn't surprise any of us that we do what we do because of what's inside of us. That's remaining sin. Number three, here's another diagnosis. Is this person venting his regrets or failing to achieve a certain cherished desire? This is the, if, if only I had mentality. If only I had the opportunity to get something I really wanted, but I threw it away. With Nancy, it's like I had the opportunity to marry somebody else that I went to youth group with, and I, I went to high school with this guy, and I should have married him. If only I should have married, if I would have married him, this wouldn't have happened. That's the idea. The person proudly acts as if uh, he could control the world, his situations, and guarantee of getting what he wants. I want to get rich. I want to be married. I want to have children. I want them to respect me. I want to see my dying dad who's unsaved receive salvation, but I froze up, and he died, and so he's in hell now because of me. Extreme example, real. You know when you first come to Christ, you're like, okay, who do we have here? I'm born again, and you're not. I'm telling you, with my grandma, I had this conversation with her. I'm like, grandma, she's Catholic, right? And I'm not here to undo your theology about Catholicism, but grandma was not born again. And she says, are you one of those born-again Christians now? I said, yes. I said, grandma, if you're on a boat and the boat's sinking and you're drowning, I said, I'm throwing you a life face vest right now. Repent and believe. <laughs> Hung up on me. Grandma, I don't think you understand, right? She didn't talk to me for like three months. But if grandma would have died early on, I would have been like, it's all my fault. Because when we first come to Christ, we think it's all us, right? If we don't get out there and do what we're doing, we forget the sovereignty of God in evangelism. He, he usually calms you down as you get to know him more, usually. The last one, and I'll close with this. What's the diagnosis? Has this person ascended to the throne of judgment and declared himself to be his own judge? Now, I didn't start with this one for a reason, because this is a hard thing to say to somebody, if you see it. It really is. Because what the, if you really think about it, what's really going on is if somebody, this is the hardest one, because if somebody knows that Jesus is the only one who has authority to forgive sins, if someone knows that, and someone also knows that Jesus provided the blood sacrifice that we needed to be forgiven, and 
they see that and they know that, but they look at their situation as different, that I know that God says this. I know that this is his standard, that I can confess my sins to him and be, my guilt will be alleviated, alleviated through Christ, the faithful one that sits at his right hand. I know that, but this is, this is different, God. This, this situation is different. And the problem's not with you and, and what your standard is. The problem is with my standard. And in my eyes, you may be the God that forgives me, but I couldn't forgive me. You see what just happened there? As you just set up a different standard other than what God's word teaches. So therefore, you're your own judge with your own standards. You're the God of your own world. And, and you have now said that I'm the one with authority to say this, but I'm also the one, that, although I didn't give a blood sacrifice, but here's what I'm saying, that it, I believe that, but this is what I'm living by. This is my practical theology right now. And so you set up a standard that's different from God's, and that's why it's a stand, standards of righteousness. It's actually a self-righteous standard. So those are just four things on what's really going on. Here's what I would say. One, if you're struggling with that this morning, remember the starting point. Okay, you may not be where I'm at. And I would just challenge you to try to get there. Try to get there. Get the word of God in front of you. Get another faithful Christian that loves you. And, and work out whatever you're struggling with, with that person. And get to that starting place, which is the word of God. I would say that. And then I'd also say that when somebody comes to you and says those words, I just, I'm having a hard time forgiving myself. I just visited somebody in the jail last week. You guys, this is really relevant. I hear it all the time. And he's just telling me that I just, I just, I, I'm almost to the point where I can forgive myself, he says. Was it a time for me to break out my ABCs of self-forgiveness? Not in that situation. I didn't have time to do it. But on an ongoing conversation, as I'm, I'm trying to love on this guy and really trying to help him, um, we're definitely going to get into some of the ins and outs to these things. So if you hear that, I would say to you as the church, as people who try to care for one another, if somebody says that to you, just be patient and be compassionate. And don't expect them to be at the same starting point you're at if you're there. Okay? So I would, the challenge for the church is always, what's the word of God teach? 